episode two of Slam City on Dunk 360. I'm Ray Memora sitting aside from me, Nkwasanya, and across from me, Jeremy Espen. There we go. Am I believe? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It's week right. two and you're already making mistakes. It's Epstein. It's <laughs> easy. Hey, hey. I, okay, listen. Ooh, I understand his last name. <laughs> <laughs> I know the first... <laughs> As, okay, look, look, look. I'm Keep sorry my, for our producer here, but I'm going to call him Jeremy. Don't worry. Just just say Jeremy Epstein. Just say it. Jeremy S. Epstein, okay? Say it smoother. Epstein. Thank That's you. There we go. That's okay. Grab it to the ball. It's high runs out. And the Thunder escape with the victory. That second game was probably the most controversial game I've ever seen because a lot of people are still talking about the calls that weren't called. But let me tell you something. That's going to happen in the last 10 seconds of the game. I mean, let's be realistic. There was five calls that weren't called. And to be honest, I kind of saw it coming. I mean, you had uh, Kawhi Leonard holding Westbrook on the inbound. That should have been a foul. Yeah, Ginobili stepping on the line. That should have been a foul. Waiters elbowing. That should have been a foul. Uh, fan holding Adams. That should have been a foul. Uh, Ibaka, Ibaka threw him down. Yeah, and then Ibaka fouling Aldridge when he tried to get the ball. That should have been a foul. I mean, there's just so many calls. But at the end of the day, the Thunder got what they got. They got a win. And now it's 1-1. I think it's interesting. We we already know that officials are imperfect people. We also know that the playoffs bring out total bedlam. But now that these calls are starting to get scrutinized more and more and more, you got to just kind of ask yourself, what's really going on here? That was an awful job by the officials. I don't know. Yeah, it definitely was. It just it was just the perfect storm of circumstances <laughs> that they've probably never seen before. But realistic, if you think about it, right? Exposed. They've never seen a play with waiters throwing a forearm into Ginobili's chest, right? So by the time they look around, is someone going to call a foul? No one calls a foul. A few seconds gone by. The play's already underway. They can't whistle it dead. There was only 13 seconds left. There's a loose ball. The, the Spurs already picked it up. You can't really whistle that play dead at that point. What are you going to do? Whistle it dead and then reset everything? I just thought it was funny when Chris Webber has reactions to the call. I mean, it was so much passion. i never seen Chris Webber that upset about a call. He was just like saying that should have been a foul. That should have been an offensive foul. But then you look at it, Ginobili's stepping on the line, so that should have been called either way. I know Deion Wade's supposed to get the call. And, you know, they're supposed to be Spurs ball, but they got the ball back anyway. That's what I understand. Like, they're complaining about the calls, but they got the ball back. So I don't know what the big deal was about it. If they didn't get the ball because back, they, I understand, but they got the ball back. Because they would have had a technical, and they would have went to the line and shot free throws and won the game. I don't think they would have won the game. I wouldn't there was 13 say. seconds left. You yeah. don't think the Spurs, if they take the lead with 13 seconds left, they're going to win the game at home? They lost one time at home the whole year. Yeah, I know. And that's with a record-breaking team. That's true. But, you know, you look at it from that game. Aldridge play his butt out. Everybody else was just standing still because it was pretty much Aldridge or bust that whole game. And then the Thunder found a way to hold on to the lead, and now they're going to game three tonight. Well, they underratedly almost blew the lead, when it, especially <laughs> on that last play where Pop ran a perfect play for Aldridge to get the ball at the three-point line and pump fake because yeah. big men don't usually defend the three-point line. Ibaka went for it, and Aldridge got fouled. He's been playing out of his mind. So they almost the Thunder almost literally almost blew that game, and they've blown the most fourth quarter leads of any NBA team this entire year. So it's a it's a game the Spurs should have won. If they lose this series, they're gonna look back on that and be like, well, we didn't play well that game, but the officials really didn't help us out. And about Lamarcus Aldridge, he was doing some of this last year with Portland too. I mean, Aldridge is one of those players where he may not be considered the most prime time player, but 
he can really go get the job done. And he's got a good cast around him that helps him do that, yeah, too. I, I've always said that uh, Marcus always just like Carmelo Anthony and power for his body because he just knows how to post up and get his shot anytime he wants. I mean, Carmelo Anthony, if he was a, if he was a power forward at that size, he'd probably be like Marcus Aldridge. But looking at that series, I want to talk about more of the matchups because what does the Thunder have to do to stop Aldridge? Because he's pretty much been unstoppable this whole series in the first two games. And, and if you look at it, I said it, I think I said on Twitter during the game that they should put Durant at the four and Ibaka at the five because Durant's length will bother Marcus Aldridge more than Ibaka. Well, they're the same size. I mean, Aldridge is 6'11". Durant yeah. is listed at 6'9", but he's really 6'11". Yeah, 6'11". But Marcus Aldridge would bully Kevin Durant down low. It, it's true, but just thinking of it from this this perspective, I mean, you got Kawhi Leonard guarding Durant most of the time, but then I see that uh, Westbrook got to take advantage of his matchup as well, but it's just there's so much scenarios you can go for. You could have Durant on Aldridge, Ibaka defend Duncan, but I think also speeds up their offense as well. But Serge Ibaka is their best big man defender. He but may not be having a great series, but he's he would guard um, Aldridge much better than Kevin Durant. Because then who's going to guard Kawhi Leonard? I mean, you really you have to live with Ibaka. Aldridge is just on fire right now. Well, I'll put a two point guard system then. I'll put Westbrook and then I'll put. On uh, Leonard? No, no, not Westbrook on Leonard. I'm saying uh, we could put Robinson on Leonard because Robinson's been doing a good job on Leonard more than Durant. Roberson, you mean? No, it's, it's a Roberson or Robinson? It's Roberson from, from Colorado. But he's been doing Gotta, gotta love college hoops. But, but um, I don't know about that because you then take some extra offense off the plus floor. Plus, then you also have to make Kevin Durant play defense. And, like, you can't give him a couple, like, breathers. I mean, if you put theoretically put Kevin Durant, if you're putting Roberson on Leonard, you could put Kevin Durant on Danny Green who really doesn't do much offensively other than run off screens. And, and let's face it. Even with Serge Ibaka having a pretty dreadful series, he's he would be the best rebounder on the floor if you were going to go the two point guard system. You don't want to lose Stephen Adams from that from that lineup. Plus, who's that other point guard that you're going to play? Because Roberson's not. I don't. I don't consider Roberson's a, a liability offensively. He, he, Huge when, liability. You're really playing four on five offensively when he's on the floor. Well, they got to do something because if the Marcos keep doing what he's doing, he's going to have his series and they get the person going to win this. I mean. How do you stop him? Because, again, what people really don't seem to understand about basketball is that people who make shots are going to make shots. There's not a defense in the world other than a blocked shot, which doesn't happen often on jumpers, that's going to stop him. Well, look, Deion Waiter said it best. One guy can't beat us. So you maybe just have to let Aldridge get off and hope nobody else does. That's the only thing that he can do. And then you look at from the Warriors and the Blazers, and it's been pretty much... uh, Two, up 2-0 two for them without Curry. Well, the bla- that last game in Game 2 was unbelievable. The Warriors were down the whole game. They take the lead finally in the late in the fourth quarter and then just blitz the Blazers. That was unbelievable the way they were playing. But that's how they do. That, that That's the team. That's how great they are as a team. People don't understand that. It's not just Curry. There's other players on the team. Especially Klay Thompson. He's, a, he's an absolute superstar. People don't really understand how good of a player he is, just not just shooting but creating off the dribble, getting into the lane, setting up for other teammates, passing. He's unbelievable. And because Curry overshadows him a bit because he's the MVP, he's averaging 30 a game, and people like watching him tip, pull up from 30 feet. Thompson is one of the better players in the NBA also. And people wanted to say that James Harden was better than Klay Thompson. Are you out of your mind? Well, I mean, didn't Klay Thompson score 37 in one quarter? Yes, he did. And he didn't miss a shot, if I recall correctly. But he's a great player. Oh, yeah. 
If so, have I seen that quarter yet where he's like unstoppable for like 14 for 14? You haven't seen that yet? No, I mean, in terms of this playoff season. I'm saying we saw it before, but I'm saying in the postseason, we haven't seen that yet. I mean, and know, I'm waiting for that. He's hit seven threes in multiple postseason games. One of the, the Literally the first player to ever do that hit seven threes in at least a few consecutive games. So. I mean, it's, it's insane. And then you look at it from Draymond Green, uh, how he's just elevating his game now. He's actually better than he was last year. And then equal dollar, of course, off the bench and Livingston. I mean, Livingston's not starting, of course, but the whole team is just better. And and you can't tell me this, that everybody, every fan should probably know what every player on the Warriors team is. I mean, we, we can go on and on on how, how great they are because they just know how to play ball together. Vesazili is a great prick-and-roll man, great yeah. defender. And they have a perfect um, backup when they let Andrew Boca go in a few years. Vesazili could just step right into that. And you have Mo Spates coming off the bench who could give you 20 off the bench. They're so deep, it's unbelievable. I know. There's not, there's really no way to stop them, and I think that's a lot of fun. Charles Oakley doesn't like me, which is no big deal. I don't like him or dislike him. I don't think about him. He's not important enough for me to think about. Somebody tell me how NBA champion Charles Oakley and Charles Barkley, they've, they've never been fans of each other. I just think it's pretty funny because with Chuck doing all the talking, look, Chuck gets paid to talk, which is very, very obvious, but... I didn't expect anybody to actually take him to task, much less Charles Oakley. Well, it stems from the fact that Charles said that Atlanta, because Cleveland was hitting all those threes, needed to take a player out. And because it was just embarrassing at that point it for Atlanta. It was embarrassing, though. I'm looking at that whole game, it was just like, well, Hawks even trying to defend them because they're getting wide open threes. Well, but Charles is no. I, I understand where he's coming from, but Charles Oakley really doesn't have any reason that Charles Barkley's doing his job. There's no reason for Charles Oakley to get all over him on Twitter for like that. When somebody get when you, somebody allows to have 25 threes in the game, if it was against me, I mean, that's just, you know, I, I've been much more angrier playing game three just to shut them down from three-point line. And it was during a blowout, too. The game was clearly over, and, and they're they still taking going. threes. I mean, that's just disrespectful. You just so, keep going. So that's where Charles Barkley's coming from. You At that point, you just have to be really upset. And I don't know what they're going to do in game three because I'm telling you, the Cavaliers are like going to sweep them, and then it's going to be either Miami or the Raptors. And honest, I mean, honestly, I, I said it after game one, and I said it earlier too, Cleveland's walking to the finals. Well, that was the theory of – that was the general consensus That's, of everybody. Obviously. For a while. I'm not trying to take sole credit for it. I'm just saying that I said it. You're in the majority there. Duh! Yeah, but – I think Miami has a better chance of beating them than probably the Raptors, though, if it comes to that. Well, Eastern Kyle Lowry could figure out what how to play again. Kyle Lowry can know how to shoot the ball and, and actually not be nervous when it comes to certain moments. I think they have a chance, but as of right now, he keeps doing that. Can we just really understand why Kyle Lowry thought he was going to make another half-court shot again? He's almost like that Jesperson kid from the University of Northern Iowa in the tournament. Oh, that was amazing. After he hit the first <laughs> one against Texas, I believe, and then... They're facing Texas A&M, and he just chucks it up. After one of the overtime games, after they blew that large lead, Yolo. Yeah, that 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 was going through his mind. I did it once. I'm gonna do it again, and he was way off. And then they ended up losing that game. Only difference is, at least Toronto barely pulled it out. Yeah, barely. But, you know, Miami's gonna win the series, regardless. I, I, Five, you, six, seven. I don't know. They were up two zero against Charlotte, and came dangerously close to blowing that series. If Toronto could figure out how they were playing and get back to the way they were playing in the regular season, they're a really good team. Yeah, but do you think they have a chance against Cleveland more than Miami? But we have to think about Miami. They have to get there first. 
But they're veteran teams, but they'll figure it out. And then when they get there, they know they can. But then, but then, who's to say that Toronto doesn't figure it out? Because Toronto, I, I believe they're that type of team where where it becomes to the big moment, they don't show up. Well, they did win in Game Seven, but in the prior, in but they almost Indiana. choked that game away too. In the well, game they seven. came back against Indiana in that fourth quarter of I think what Game Five when they were yeah. da- way down. Mm-hmm. So they've they've shown some grit that they haven't shown in years past. Against the Brooklyn Nets, they lost at home last year. Against the Wizards, they got swept. So they've shown some toughness and grit, but they have just completely choked in the postseason in terms of living up to their potential. I just don't trust this Raptors team, though. They're, they're, they're like the, the Bengals of the NFL to the Rangers of the MLB. It's it's just these teams, they're talented, but when it comes to these big moments, it's like you don't you can't trust them. So I don't know if they're going to beat Miami, but if they do beat Miami, I don't think they have a chance because of Cleveland. No, Cleveland's going to go to the finals. But the way they're playing right now with the ball movement, Kevin Love's getting involved, yeah, Kyrie's getting involved, LeBron's getting involved, they're, they're going to walk to the finals. But look at it this way. They're, they're moving the ball right now. But they haven't faced adversity yet. I want to see them how they are when they're down by ten, when down against by fifteen. Against Detroit, there ne- were the tough games against the Pistons. You have to give the Pistons yeah, credit. They the, gave them tough yeah, games. But, but that's adversity. In game one, they were losing yeah, at home. They're facing a young Pistons team, though. I mean, and if they didn't win that series, they have a problem. But they haven't blown so, everybody out by fifty. They've had they've had to make comebacks in the playoffs. So it's is, not like they haven't faced anything which at is all. Kind of sad. It's almost like if they can't do this against the Eastern teams, how are they gonna do it against the big time Western teams? Well, no but, one's saying they're gonna win. They're saying they're gonna get there. And I think the idea that the the Cavs had to blow out everyone to walk to the finals that that's a little bit nonsensical to me. Because yes, when we say that Cleveland's coming out of the East. We know that they're going to battle for it. No team's going to roll over and say, oh, Cleveland's here. We might as well not play. Because an older Detroit team might knock them off. Probably. With Drummond and Reggie Jackson, a couple years with Tobias Harris. Detroit's got a really good team. I'm telling you. I'm just saying. That's why I believe Miami's the only team, because they're a veteran team. They're being a LeBron's head. And Pat Ryan will, have, will love nothing to do than to just knock out uh, Cleveland and Lisa Conference. So let me posit this question to the both of you. If Chris Bosh is healthy, does Cleveland still walk to the finals? I say no. No, but I still think they have a puncher's chance even without Chris Bosh. I just feel like the team's so deep. Like They have a lot of good players on their team. I mean, pick, the pickup Joe Johnson really saved their season, so... I, I believe he's going to have a big game either way. So I believe they have a puncher's chance. It, it's tough to evaluate because with Chris Bosh, before he went down in the All-Star break, the Heat were not playing well. But the real the revolution that reignited their season was the small ball lineup that they've been going yeah, with. Yeah, with Joe Johnson. So, I mean, they have so much success with that. I think with Chris Bosh, obviously, they have a much better chance. But it's not one that you say, oh, you put Chris Bosh on the floor, they're definitely going to be Cleveland. It's also about matchups, though. I mean, if you look at it, if it comes to Cleveland-Miami, you have Dang most likely guarding LeBron. You have Joe Johnson playing, you know, either the power four position or whatever it is. And then Drogic, of course, playing the point guard. But then you look at it, uh, center, Hassan Whiteside is the X factor for that series because what he can do as a shot blocker and he can get his points. And his temper. He yeah. could get technical fouls immediately. Well, it's going to be a battle with him and Tristan Thompson, I'll tell you that. Yeah, because also Tristan Thompson's undersized for Whiteside. Yeah, so Whiteside could dominate that series. But the thing is, and people say that Cleveland and the Warriors – Cleveland could actually beat him this this time around, but with Irving and Love. But the thing is, the matchup doesn't work for for Cleveland with the Warriors because Irving and Love are not good defenders, and it just favors the Warriors more, more so than the grind out they had last last so finals. Let let let's get through the Eastern Conference first. I don't even want to think about the finals yet because I'm kind of enjoying these series as we have them. Welcome to the Space Jam. Here's your chance. Do your dance at the Space Jam. Speaking of Cleveland, so one superstar. 
air quotes or not, from that team is going to make a remake of another classic basketball movie, which I think is only classic because of, A, the NBA players that were in it, and B, because the great Bugs Bunny, baby. Bugs Bunny. Is he going to come back? Ray, you actually had a bunch of storylines, or at least two, for Space Jam. What, what were they? Well, one storyline, I thought this would be good, is if uh, James uh, knew that the Looney Tunes team didn't, wasn't performing well against the Monstars. He joins the Monstars, and then he just jumps on them, and then Looney Tunes try to get stars to compete against LeBron and the Monstars, which is one storyline that I possibly can do. There's no way LeBron is going to let never let him do that. <laughs> I mean, it's a LeBron thing if you think about it, though. Yeah, but he's, he's going for the talent. Fun of himself. <laughs> he's not that nice. You think people hate LeBron now? Imagine if he plays against Bugs Bunny. Oh, they got hate me no more. And then there was one storyline. Uh, another storyline was with LeBron pretty much having stars from the NBA compete with. I mean, being pretty much on the same team to compete against the Monstars. That's another storyline that could happen. I mean, that, that's. <sighs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's how LeBron the Monstars is, Monstars take the talent to the NBA. But that's what I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, they'll, do, they'll take talent from the NBA legends of, of when they were young. I believe there's going to be some kind of technology thing where they take the primes of, of Michael Jordan well, and Larry Bird. and characters, so anything's possible. Yeah, they could, they could, <laughs> they could take the, the prime years of Michael Jordan, Larry, uh, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, these guys, and they all become the Monstars, and, and LeBron needs help from the stars of this, uh, you know, today's game, and then they compete against them. I mean, LeBron is, is, is. I know people are gonna say that I'm pretty much a hater here about LeBron, but the fact of the matter is that LeBron needs stars to win the championship, so it's not surprising this will happen as part of a storyline. I don't think Steph Curry would be a much better person to take over for Mike, that Michael Jordan role than LeBron James. I think Steph Curry would be perfect for Space Jam. Help maybe her. on, maybe as one of the people in the gym, but love or hate LeBron James, it's his league. No, it's Steph Curry's no, league. Steph Curry's league. I disagree point, still. No, I, I, no. I disagree LeBron's still. LeBron's in Steph Curry's league right now. LeBron is in Steph this Curry's Steph era Curry's right now. Yeah. His decade. This is, this is Steph Curry's decade right now of dominating. Decade? He's only dominated for two years. That's not Decade? I guess dominated, but he's been a productive player before yeah. last yeah, year. Yeah, he, he was, was an all-star. Pl- he was a d- productive player, but not not this MVP level. He's the most skillful player right now when he's healthy. We all know that. And the thing about LeBron James is we don't even know how he's gonna be in he five broke years. NBA 2K. We don't know how. Le- <laughs> yeah, we don't know how LeBron's gonna be in five years when he when he lost all his strength and he's not as dominant as he. But was LeBron right now. James was literally dominant even before that. Yeah, LeBron really came into his own 2005, 2006. It's still LeBron's league. It's not LeBron's league. Steph Curry is emerging. Steph Curry's going to take it over when he wins the chip this year. But it's still LeBron's league. Who's so, the best so, player so in the you, NBA right now? Best player in the NBA right now? It's still LeBron James. How? Steph Curry no, was on a 73-win team and was LeBron a catalyst James. of that. LeBron James can do everything on a basketball court. I'm not even a big LeBron James fan, is, but I know what it is. But that is his, that, that's the problem with him. He can do everything on the court, and that's a curse for him because – Coaches are gonna play him forty-two minutes a game, and eventually he's gonna break. He's gonna uh, grind, you know, pretty much wear down. So does that over. make if, Steph Curry that much better that he sits out fourth quarters? If LeBron was the best player in the NBA, wouldn't David Blatt still be the coach? Exactly. <sighs> he got his coach fired. He gets a lot of coaches fired. Nobody Mike, Mike couldn't push Phil out the door. But Mike loved Phil. What are you talking about? There were times when he didn't. They were what? Bro- no, they, they were weren't. Like the only reason he didn't come Did back. Did you read the Jordan rules? They were like brothers. That was though. the Pistons. Yeah, the Pistons. No, though. the Jordan rules, written by Sam Smith, 
read it and then come back to me. Because there were times where Mike was just like, nah, I'm not with it. Phil got Michael to acquiesce and trust his teammates. Michael doesn't become the great he is without Phil. No, duh. But what I am telling you is that if we're solely basing LeBron's greatness on the court by who was coaching him, I I don't know. Yeah, I really don't know. No, that's not the point I was making. The point I was making is LeBron was such a great player. There would be no reason to get rid of David Blatt because they wouldn't have lost the locker room. And you can't say a team with Michael Jordan, the coach, lost the locker room. I mean, if LeBron was a leader, they wouldn't have just tuned out the coach. LeBron actively goes with these passive-aggressively things to get to just undermine his coaches. He did it in Miami with Eric Spolstra, and he did it in Cleveland with David Blatt since the moment they hired him. Let's be realistic. Right now it's Coach LeBron, and you have Ty Lue as an assistant. Let's just think about that right he now. He subs himself in and out of games. I know. Have you seen any That's player? Have you seen Michael Jordan do that with Phil Jackson? Sub himself out in and out of games? No. Because it's a certain of respect. LeBron has no respect to anybody. That's why he has no respect to Tyron Lue and he has no respect to David Blatt. And, and people and the players are actually following him more than Tyron Lue. And I know that in, in the back in the locker rooms, they're talking about that stuff. But but we all know Tyron Lue is the coach and he's trying to be a good soldier. But it really is LeBron coaching this team. And that's going to be his downfall. It will always be his downfall. Draft day, Johnny Manziel. Five years later, how am I the man still? His uh, pictures of fame, if you will call it, when he was taking, when he's officially booked in the Dallas uh, this week. And it's just so like. the Hall of Shame. Yeah, the Hall of Shame. But he was pretty much happy about it. I mean, looking at it from his smile, just like, wow. He's rich. Like, not even with NFL money. He, his family is rich. I don't think he has a care in the world. He doesn't, but... Well, he should because he's yeah. accused of he domestic sh- violence. I agree, <laughs> but again, disgusting. he's rich. So I don't think he really I don't think he really gets it yet. I don't think the ramifications, like you're saying, have really set in on him. One, his NFL career is basically over. Pretty much. And he's got cut by his team, and forget all that, with all the baggage he has off the field, two agents dropped him because he refused to go to rehab. And if that's not bad enough, Ryan Leaf... The guy, the guy they took over, um, Peyton Manning is, um, excuse me, behind Peyton Manning, says looking at Johnny Manziel is like looking at himself in a mirror, and you still don't get it. And Ryan Leaf was also went to jail for you know pain prescription. And again, you still don't get it. No. Uh, again, he doesn't get it. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's gonna take him a while to process this because he's a pretty much a slow person apparently. So we kind of understand that he's going to be in jail. I don't buy that. I yeah, really I don't. don't buy he, that. You can't. He's was an NFL quarterback at some point. I just don't think he He just thinks he's above the law. He can do whatever he wants. He has all the money in the world. He has all the popularity. Which is terrible. I mean, if he thinks that way, then he's going to go to a road where he's not going to come back and he's going to be in he's jail. He's already for the rest on of his that life. road. And you know what makes me mad? I was rooting for him so hard because he didn't give a damn. That's what made him so fun to watch at Texas A&M. And even more so when the school tried to make Johnny football t-shirts, his family was like, nah, you're not doing that. That was so cool to me. He he managed to flip off the NCAA and was able to do his thing. I was rooting for him to do something good. And then he does this. Well, that's Johnny Manziel. He's been doing this, I should He's say. He's proved all his critics right. Which sucks. Literally every worst case scenario, he's pretty much done. I mean, for him and, and these other athletes that do stupid stuff like this, it's just it's becoming a trend in the NFL. I mean, to be honest, with all these athletes doing their stupid stupid stuff when it comes to marijuana or drinking, and they know they know this, but and they still do violence. it. And yeah, but they that know too. It. They know it, but they still do it. It's like 
you know, one time it's good enough. I mean, you can tell them to not do it again. But then the second time they do it, I think you just got to be more strict on the policy then. I mean, here's the thing. And I know that people have their views about how the NFL handles their substance abuse, suspensions or whatever. From a purely, purely monetary standpoint, it makes no sense for any of those substances to be anywhere around you. But substance abuse isn't really what's causing him the issues right now. It's an ancillary cause, but right now the real problem is the domestic violence issue. I know, but what I'm what I'm saying is if you actually cared about your career from a purely monetarily looking you should standpoint, not be drinking or you shouldn't doing be any alcohol, you shouldn't be doing like any of this stuff. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. You shouldn't be doing any of this stuff. But they still do it. And the fact is, it's just an addiction. Which and blows my mind. Yes, they should go get help, but that doesn't take away from the ramifications. Never should. Well, look at Josh Gordon, Manziel's best friend. He can't pass oh, a gosh. he can't pass a drug test, and oh, he can't play. Goodness. The diag duo, you can, you can call it. And the thing is, I, th- I think he really needs help, too. But you can't keep getting caught. You can't keep doing it. You know? It's I mean, just, I mean you, you know, this year I wrote an article about Brian. I had to... Changing around because of what happened this year, and it was just something that that it was just it kind of caught me off guard because I was just like this guy has potential and everything, but it's just it's just a, it's just a trend that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and you hear that expression, but it's just like it just keeps happening to these talented players more so than the players that are it's crazy. working. It's talking so about crazy. Martavis Bryant, yeah, yeah, that's. I a- mean, it was just it was ridiculous, man. And, and I don't know what they gotta do. To be honest, the policy should be more strict then because if they don't get it in their heads one time. How Maybe much more strict it. can it be? Josh Gordon hasn't played in forever. Look at Justin Blackman. He's out of the league. Well, maybe they do it one time. They're out for the year. Uh, how's that? Is they that already nice? are. They but don't second, care. They don't second <laughs> and third time. Yeah, but usually it's the second or third time that they're really out. The first time it's like a four-game suspension. Yeah, maybe but the they know time. that, and they still keep fa- – a guy like Josh Gordon still keeps failing tests, and knowing if he keeps failing, he's going to be out of the league. It and just these contracts are per game. That's what people don't understand. They're not guaranteed when you at all. Get, yeah, and when you get suspended, you don't get paid. At all. And the thing that I will never, ever understand, Stephen A. Smith, Jeremy and I, were, we were talking about this early. Stephen A. Smith says a lot of questionable things. One thing he was right about, show me a $7 million bag of weed. Show me any sort of substance that's worth the amount of money that you plan to lose. And again, this is all just looking at it from a monetary standpoint. When you throw in the cultural stuff, when you throw in the impact it has on the the other human beings involved, be it the spouse, be it the family, when you throw all that in, it just makes the whole thing not worth it. You know, Tim Smith, how he says it, stay off the weed. (laughs) That's how it should be. I mean, but it's true, though. I mean, just look at all these athletes, and and, and it just pays me to see them throw away their life away. I mean, that really kills me away. They're throwing away their life away because of a drug. And, And I think this is a very interesting thing to look at, too. Who's around them? The best. Who's in their circle? Johnny Manziel does not have the. Johnny Manziel, I don't think he has a circle. It's weird. He I is really Josh don't... Gordon. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that's not really helping his cause. On that's the point, though. Right? He has the people around him are not advising him. Well, his dad told ESPN that he's worried he'll, he won't be around anymore. That's possibility. I mean, just look it's at It's sad. Way. It's so sad. I and mean, when that, that's, what, that's really what happens, at least from what we see on the outside looking in. I haven't really experienced this myself. I don't think any of us I have. I don't think any of us have. But once you start to get money, all of the, the voices that tell you that, 
to do good stuff or all the voices that kind of keep you in check just kind of go away because you have money. You can make your own decisions now. And Manziel went to rehab already. This is a major, major relapse. To say the least. My God. It's a significant issue that really should be taken seriously. And he just doesn't seem to be taking any of it seriously, whether it be his NFL career or his sobriety. I don't think his career even matters anymore at this point. Let's keep him alive. I think what matters here, though, is that you got to treat these athletes like kid gloves. You got to pretty much make sure they don't do anything terrible off the court. You got to make sure they're in pretty much in but school and do whatever they got to do. Oh, no. I hate that because but you they're gotta cuddle grown. Them. But you no, gotta cuddle they're them. grown. But if you treat somebody like that with a rebellion, with a natural tendency to rebel, they're going to rebel against the treatment if you treat them like kid gloves. If you set curfews, you say you can't do this, you can't do that. But you gotta coddle them because if you don't, they're just gonna. But that does You but, have Manziel. That's what you gotta have. You gotta have Gordon. You gotta have these athletes that just throw away their life away because of that. Because but, they have bad people around them. So you gotta be able to. You can't. Them with good and people. an NFL team can't control that. They can't because they're grown men, like he said. But I think that's the only way you can do. I mean, what else can you do? <laughs> and you know, speaking of the NFL, we have Kristen Dyer here talking with us about the Jets and Giants. Kristen, it's Raymond, Unqua, and Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? How are you all doing? Oh, we're doing well. Doing very well. Now, we want to, you know, pretty much talk about the Jets first before we get to the Giants because, you know, it's all been the Jet talks about the quarterback, about the draft picks they have. And, you know, the pick that got me interested was the Christian Hackenberg pick. And a lot of fans were pretty much upset, and some fans were a little, you know, content about it. But what do you think of the pick? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting one to me. In that I didn't think he was going to go that early in the second round. I thought he might even fall to, to the third round. Uh, but the fact that the Jets draft, you know, traded up to get this guy is really telling about where they see him being in terms of the future of, of the franchise. Listen, Christian Hackenberg is not ready to be a starter. He's not going to be uh, leading the Jets out of the tunnel week one. Um, is, is he uh, a little bit of a project? Yes. I mean, Freshman year at Penn State, this guy was absolutely tremendous. He, uh, you know, he was probably considered to be one of the top five quarterbacks in the country as a freshman, and and, and that'll tell you something. He's got the size, he's got the intangibles. He, he played a high level of football in the Big Ten, but when you look at what has happened in the last two years of the terrible offensive line, some regression in terms of his footwork, uh, some of the other pieces. He is a reclamation project. If it works out, I think the Jets got uh, maybe someone who who could be the second-best quarterback in this draft class um, if things work out. But it's going to take some time, and that's where a a veteran quarterback such as Ryan Fitzpatrick comes in, teaches him the system, teaches him the cerebral side, kind of goes through things, and buys him a, a year, if not two years of development will be key. You know, I, I saw um, the John Gruen camp, actually, on, on Christian Hackenberg, and it's very interesting to see how, how he is as a player, but he's pretty much a player that, that pick up a lot of concepts, and I know they're not going to start him this year, ho- hopefully not, but looking at his overall game, wh- what do you think is, like, the one flaw he has to work on specifically? Is it more of footwork? Is it more of reading plays? Because it looks like he, he picks up concepts really quick. Yeah, he's definitely not a dumb guy. I mean, you know, he, he, he's sharp. He understands the playbook. He gets progressions. 
I think he certainly understands um, just kind of where he needs to go with his reads. It, it does boil down to the footwork with this kid. When he gets under pressure, everything gets sloppy. And then when the feet go, the rest of the mechanics go, and he has, he has a tendency then to either shot put passes down the field or kind of kill a few worms uh, you know, with some ground ball throws to his wide receivers. So uh, I think if the footwork can be settled, that's going to be something that's going to take at least a year. Um, Hackenberg can be a, a pretty good NFL quarterback. He was also killed, though, at Penn State by someone who I think is probably one of the five worst game day coaches in all of college football, and that's James Franklin. The guy can recruit. The guy can give a great uh, locker room speech, but in terms of adjustments, in terms of the X's and O's on the field, he was hurt by that. And I think when you look at the success he had with Bill O'Brien and then once James Franklin came on board, there's a pretty stark contrast. So I would expect that in a couple of years' time, Hackenberg will look a lot more polished than he does right now. Christian Unqua here. Glad you could join us today. What are your thoughts on Darren Lee, especially since it's the second straight year that the McCagnan Bowles regime took a defensive player in the first round. Yeah, and, and, and how about a linebacker? I mean, he's, he's a little bit of an undersized guy. Isn't necessarily going to wow you with his strength. Um, uh, he has a tough time fighting through tackles a little bit. Sometimes tries to run through them. He won't necessarily be the prototypical 3-4 inside linebacker where you're called to take on blockers to free somebody else. That's going to be David Harris's role now, that kind of uh, role that Bart Scott here in New York made famous for a few years with the Jets, someone who's going to throw his body down there, do the dirty work so that someone else will shine. Um, but I think Lee brings the speed. I like him sideline to sideline. His footwork is good. It's not choppy. Technique-wise, he's a little raw, uh, but the Jets needed desperately some team speed, and in particular in the secondary. They had a very difficult time last year defending against wheel routes. After Lee was drafted, I tweeted out that uh, the Philadelphia Eagles game in Week 3 is probably the reason why the Jets ended up drafting Darren Lee, because uh, in, in that game, it was nothing but wheel routes uh, f from the Eagles on offense. Those were all the big plays that they had. So being able to add some speed, someone who's good in coverage, and when you're expecting your, your edge linebackers in the 3-4 to blitz as much as the Jets do, having someone who can cover a lot of ground is going to be invaluable. So uh, I think the Jets got good value at number 20. I think they have a prospect of a little bit of time in the strength and conditioning program. A couple protein shakes here or there can probably become a pretty nice impact player at the next level. And Christian, is Jeremy here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing well. So uh, You sound you a little nervous to be talking to Oh, no to doubt, you. Christian. <laughs> No doubt, Christian. We know each other a long time, so anytime I get the chance to talk to you, it's great. So you mentioned Ryan Fitzpatrick earlier, possibly mentoring Christian Hackenberg. So, have you of the are you of the family of thought that he will be back with the Jets next year? Well, what are their other options, and what are his options? I think when push comes to shove, the Jets are going to be able to put a good deal out there. I think it certainly would have been expedited if they had been able to trade Muhammad Wilkerson. That would have freed up the money. Um, that would have given them multiple draft picks. And that's something I could still see playing out over the next month or so, is that uh, some team will go out there and be willing to send multiple picks, maybe a second and a fourth or a second, fifth and a sixth in next year's draft to get Wilkerson. And the Jets are freed up $15, $16 million, and they're able to sign Fitzpatrick and have some money for some of the tough decisions they need to make next year. Um, you know, Fitzpatrick doesn't have anywhere else to go. 
when you look at the year that he came off of, I think he certainly has the ability physically to be able to play a couple more seasons. And I think this would be a nice way to be able to cap things off. He also has never made the playoffs in the entirety of his NFL career. And this might be the best bet that he has as a starter, at least, uh, to, to be able to make the playoffs with the team. The, the Jets aren't far away from being a playoff team, and I, I think that so, by middle July, uh, at the latest, there will be some sort of revo- resolution on this. So in the event Fitzpatrick doesn't come back, what do you make of the Jets' current quarterback situation? Who do you think is the favorite going in? Well, it would have been great if they had thought about Brian Hoyer as a legitimate contender there. I think Hoyer can play in this league. I think he can be a starter. I'm not sure if if the Jets do not go with Fitzpatrick if their starting quarterback for week one is on their roster. I think uh, the talk about Geno Smith, they showed absolutely no interest in Geno Smith uh, once he was healthy from his broken jaw last year. Um, It wouldn't surprise me to see them perhaps make a move with a middle-round pick to obtain Mike Glennon in Tampa Bay. I know several people in the organization are high on Mike Glennon, uh, not this, not a Laramie Tunsil kind of high, but high on him in terms of uh, just thinking that he can be a good starting quarterback in the NFL. So I think that the Jets will end up making a move at some point. And Fitzpatrick may just be willing to wait this thing out. Some quarterback always goes down in preseason, and a team needs a starter for eight to ten weeks. So uh, Fitzpatrick might be willing to wait it out, but his best fit is here and vice versa. Speaking of Laramie Tunsil, what do you make of that whole draft day fiasco that he had? And it also cost him some pretty serious money. Yeah, about $7 million is what they're saying. And, uh, you know, to me, it's not a question of whether he, you know, made the decision to participate in recreational drug use or uh, even the issues with Ole Miss paying him. I mean, we know that if you go to an SEC school, you're not paying for rent, right? You know, that, that Mercedes that you got, you didn't inherit from your grandmother. Um, you know, it's there are going to be these questions about all of these guys. To me, the questions that come down are uh, just the overall character issues. It's what is what kind of judgment does he have that he thinks it's a good idea to have himself be filmed, uh, you know, participating in, in this kind of drug use or to send a message out that way or the kind of people that he's associated with, whether it's his father or, or somebody else who's willing to post those kind of messages. You know, to me, those are the red flags about Tunzel. Not that he did this or did that, but the judgment that he made, that he's making. It's the same kind of issues that the Jets had with Sheldon Richardson last year. Nothing that Sheldon did was terribly awful or surprising for an NFL player, but the fact that he showed the lack of judgment in doing them, that's the question mark. So uh, I wonder if we're going to see more of this from Tunsil uh, in the NFL, maybe not necessarily participating in these activities, but being caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. That can be just as bad to an NFL career. Speaking of Tunsil, you know, the Giants uh, pretty much didn't – put him on, on the radar. They actually picked somebody else instead of Tonsil. Um, what do you think of Eli Apple for this team? Uh, you know what? I don't see the pick for it, guys. When you look at the Giants' secondary as it stands now, Dominic Rogers, Cromartie, and Janoris Jenkins are two very good outside cornerbacks. What the Giants needed from this draft was a nickelback, and they had that guy on the board, the top nickelback in the draft. Some would have said the top cornerback in the draft, and Vernon Hargraves the third. He was available there at number 10. He went one pick later uh, to Tampa Bay. So certainly um, he's somebody who I think uh, should have been the fit for the Giants, certainly talent-wise. 
Uh, he was being looked at as being the top cornerback in the league. He's the, uh, in the draft, rather. He's aggressive. Um, he's got the kind of trajectory where you see him being a 10-year starter and a couple Pro Bowl-type appearances. And in a league that passes 60% of the time, uh, where versions of the spread offense are getting more popular, your nickelback is essentially a starting cornerback in the NFL. And what the Giants got was another outside cornerback who is going to have some difficulty on the inside. Um, Giants play a lot of zone uh, in, in terms of their secondary, and uh, Eli Apple is better as a press corner. So uh, to me, it just seems like it's, it's not a good fit for what they need to do. It seemed like a panic move. Um, probably couldn't have gotten away with taking Taylor Decker, uh, the Ohio State right tackle at that point in the draft, uh, but that might have been the better option for them. So I think at some point the Giants are going to have to address the tackle situation because they don't have one who's the starting caliber right tackle right now on their roster. But then Anthony Davis uh, becomes available all of a sudden. I'm not sure about that, but uh, the Giants did not address that in the second round. They got a very good wide receiver. They did not address it in the third round. Uh, so to me, it's a major question mark for them where they kind of go from here at the tackle position. They didn't get a cornerback that fit their knees, and they didn't get a right tackle in the first round. It was easily the weakest part of their draft. Yeah, Christian, what do you kind of make? You just mentioned the right tackle issues of the Giants' offseason. They've handed out some questionable contracts. They're entering a new era with Ben McAdoo as their head coach. What do you kind of make? What, are the, what, do, you, what do you think the vision of the Giants is right now, especially with Jerry Reese? Yeah, $200 million being spent on free agency, and probably about 95% of it was on the defense. That's uh, an awful lot of contracts. And I, I don't know if you can say there are winners or losers anymore in NFL free agency after uh, you know the first couple of days. It's, the only winners are going to be the players who get these contracts. Every team is going to overpay. The Giants significantly overpaid for Olivier Vernon, who is a nice edge rusher, but I don't know if you can say he's worthy of an elite contract like he got. Same thing with Janoris Jenkins. You can absolutely say that about him. Um, he's being over the top an awful lot. So um, they, they addressed some needs. I, I like the contract they gave to Damon Harrison. I thought that was good. Steven Robinson at linebacker was an underrated move. Their defense is going to be better. It was worse than the league last year. With the offense they have, if Victor Cruz comes back healthy, and if Sterling Shepard is as good as he looks on tape, their offense should be fine. Um still need to address some issues on the offensive line, but it could, in theory, still be a top-five offense in this league. So all you're asking for the Giants' defense to be is rather average, and I think they've done that. So that might be enough to get them in the playoffs. So the moves they made, they had to make. It was just very expensive, and they had to overpay. We're talking to Christian Dyer, covers the Giants and the Jets for USA Today. Christian, I want to talk a little bit about Eli Manning. I really kind of felt like he, he was very inconsistent last year. What do you take from that, and do you see him taking a step forward or a step back coming into this year? Well, it was it's hard to be good when uh, about two-thirds of your offensive line's missing games and uh, you, you've only got Odell Beckham to throw, to throw to. No Larry Donald, who was great in the red zone for them. Ruben Randall plagued them with drops. It seemed like every game he was having two or three drops. So, um I think some of those issues can be alleviated, especially on the offensive line, if they're able to take care of that with a trade or a move uh, during offseason. But, uh, you know, when you look at everything with Eli, certainly he's somebody last year who put together one of the best statistical seasons in his career. I know there was a lot of fourth-quarter interceptions, but it seemed like he was always doing that in games where the Giants were desperately trying to get back into it. 
he was trying to make plays, and he ends up getting faulted for a comeback that didn't happen, but his team was almost always in a hole. And uh, The Giants seemingly were starting off the first quarter down 10 nothing uh, before the ball was even kicked off at the start of the game. Uh, that's how bad they were in the opening quarter defensively in particular. So uh, I think some of those issues will be resolved just by the fact that the defense should be improved. They shouldn't necessarily be in a hole quite as much. Field position will be better. If the offensive line can improve, I think Eli Manning has the chance to have a, a very big season. All right, the last question, and it's pretty much the question that every Giant fan wants where, where, to... Where did, where did Jeremy go, guys? One question. He didn't fly I asked a couple of questions. He asked a couple of questions. I'm the producer here, Christian. Oh. I, I don't take the limelight. Well, well I wanted to ask you this because every Giant fan wants to know what you think is going to happen in this NFC East division. you think the Giants are going to have a chance to win this division or are they going to be a wild card team with the, with the team that it is right now? wide open division right now. I'm not convinced that the Redskins have taken a significant step forward this offseason. They didn't address all the needs that they have and concerns on defense and you know, I'm not sure if that offense Cook Cousins is necessarily going to be a long term answer. Uh but I think that there's a, some some issues and concerns there if this team has taken the next step and I'm not sure they have. I think that they capitalized on a very bad uh division last year. The Eagles certainly I know everyone's excited about some of the trades and moves that they made, but the Eagles' offensive line is, is going to be undersized this year. Uh, the same line that uh, Chip Kelly put together, that's going to be an undersized team that's not running that spread up tempo offense. So I'm not sure that, that's a recipe for disaster. And Dallas Cowboys had a, a draft where they severely reached in the first round. Second round, they got someone who might not be ready to play for 18 months. Uh, they've got issues in the secondary as well. So I think the Giants are in a good position to contend for the division. I'm not sure they're a playoff team. Um, they haven't made a playoff since 2011. But I think now is the time. The NFC East is down. They have very winnable games um, against Philadelphia. I mean, that should be two wins right there. And I think that if you kind of are, are just able to look and, and things break the right way, this is a team that I think potentially could have four or five wins in the division, and that would be enough to get them in the playoffs. So uh, they, they need to capitalize on the fact that the division is down right now, and with the salary cap space that they have, about $21 million, if they're able to carry over 10 or $12 million of that into next year's free agency with the money coming off the books and some restructured contracts, Giants could be poised to be that top team in the NFC East for the next three to four years. But they've got to take advantage of some things this year. I don't think nine or ten wins is out of the question for this team, especially given the number of close losses that they had last year. Uh, but it's going to take some doing and things breaking the right way for them this year. All right, that's good. Thank you for all the information on the Giants and Jets. We'll be in contact throughout the season for sure. Thanks, Christian. Thank you very much, Christian. Uh, Always great to talk to you. <laughs> I appreciate it, guys, and and, and uh, good good luck with Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so listen, we're going to be off next week, but we'll be back the week after. Guys, since the NBA playoffs are still going to be there, what are your Eastern Conference and Western Conference final matchups looking like? Well, for me, I got Heat and the Cavaliers in the Eastern Conference finals, and I got Warriors and Thunder. I'm going to probably roll with the Warriors and the Spurs. I think the Spurs will rebound. I think they'll be able to win one game in Oklahoma City, and I don't know if the Thunder will be able to win another game in San Antonio. And for the East, I'm going to roll with the Cavs and the Heat. I just think the Raptors are too inconsistent at this point. 
I don't know what it is about this year, but I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say Toronto and Cleveland in the East. In the West, the Cavs and the Spurs. Excuse me, the Cavs. Whoa, the Warriors and the Spurs. I, I know it, it's been a long show, guys, but that was fun still. Yeah, it was very fun. But think about the Cavs were in the West, right? I don't think they will go this far. If you think about it. That's a good question. Would the Cavs even go that far in the West? No shot. Probably not. I, I think maybe second round, that's it. Maybe so. But we'll see. And that's how we end the show at Slam City, episode two on Dunk 360. Special thanks to Christian Dyer for joining the show. And, you know, Jeremy loves you, too. Oh, 100%. And you. you can follow Christian on Twitter. Christian R. Dyer. Christian with a K. And subscribe to us also on the podcast and share it with all your sports fans. That's right. Oh, oh, we got to talk about the distribution. We're on SoundCloud. We're on iTunes. We're on TuneIn Radio, too. So... There are no excuses. You can follow all of us on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Jeremy EPS. Mine's at more in this 10. Mine's at N underscore A-S-O-N-Y-E. And always Dunk360 at the Dunk360 because there can only be one. Exactly. Thanks for listening and tune in to the next episode in two weeks on Dunk360.com.